Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. It's a joy to be with all of you. Uh, this is Reformation Sunday, for those of you who didn't know, uh, which means in a mere three days, October 31st, we're celebrating uh, the 501 year mark since uh, Martin Luther famously hammered his theses to the door of Castle Church there in Wittenberg. And I thought it'd be worth uh, kicking off our time uh, on Reformation Sunday with a few of those theses that changed the world. And so, uh, because really what we're celebrating uh, this Sunday, what we're celebrating all week, is the recovery of the good news, uh, the gospel that you're saved. We learn from Scripture alone that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, so God and God alone gets the glory. That's the good news that we're here to celebrate together. And so here's a few of the theses uh, that young Martin Luther famously hammered to the door. Uh, Thesis 27. There is no divine authority for preaching that the soul flies out of purgatory. Immediately the money clinks in the bottom of the chest. And the historic backdrop of that particular thesis is there was this guy who was kind of like a televangelist of the 16th century, a guy named John Tetzel, uh, who was going around and telling people, the minute your coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs, right? He had this kind of bumper sticker slogan that was really to get people to buy salvation. Salvation wasn't a free gift. You literally had to pay for it uh, through the corrupt indulgence industry. And Luther's saying, no, if the gospel isn't free, it's not the gospel. Thesis 36, any Christian whatsoever who's truly repentant enjoys plenary remission from penalty and guilt, and this is given to him without letters of indulgence. So again, Luther is just hammering down this point that you aren't saved by your performance, you don't pay for it, it's not you measuring up to God, it's not salvation isn't a handshake where you meet God in the middle, salvation from beginning, middle to end is grace, grace, and more grace. Thesis 62, he says, the true treasure of the church is the holy gospel of the glory and the grace of God. And let me just speak that to you, King's Cross, this morning. What's the true treasure of this church? Luther nails it. The true treasure of this church is the holy gospel of the glory and the grace of God. Amen? So we're going to dive into uh, the longest sentence in Scripture this morning. It's 202 words in the original Greek. Uh, Ephesians 1, Oscar just read a chunk of it for us. Uh, The longest run-on sentence, and it's Paul preaching the gospel that Luther's recovering in the 16th century, and you just get this sense reading it that he's so overjoyed that this is the best news history has ever heard that he's just almost tripping over himself. He just can't catch his breath. 
because the good news of the gospel is just that good. And so I know Oscar read it, but I want us to read through all 202 words. I'm going to read it for you again, just to give you a sense, because it would have been read out loud in the first century, uh, just to give you a sense of Paul's excitement for how good the good news is. So here goes. Uh, If you want to follow along, I'm in Ephesians 1. I'm going to read the full um, 202 words for you. He says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will and to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He's blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Keep in mind, this is still one sentence. You know, our English Bibles, they throw a few periods in there, but in the Greek, it just runs straight on through. And it keeps going for the next four verses that I don't think uh, made it to the slide here. But Paul continues, same breath, in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Like, take a breath after that. I mean, there's 202 words of gospel-packed truth coming straight from the Spirit-inspired pen of Paul. And I want us to to unpack some of that together as a reminder this Reformation Sunday of the greatest news in history. Now, if you think of those 202 words as a song, there's a chorus to the song. There's one phrase that pops up three times in the same insanely long sentence. Did anybody catch it? To the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glorious grace is the chorus of of this 202-word gospel proclamation. It's all to the praise of His glory. Because we're saved by grace, God and God alone gets the glory. It's not a handshake. It's not 50-50. It's not meet in the middle. It's not even 99%, 1% us. It's not 99.999% God, 0.0001% us. It is 110% God's grace by which we are saved. And because we're saved by grace and grace alone, God and God alone gets the glory. Amen? And so that good news is to the praise of His glorious grace. And there's actually a Trinitarian structure to this passage where it starts off, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one adopting us. He's the one lavishing every spiritual blessing. And so it's to the praise of His glorious grace. And then later on, all of these blessings are happening in Christ because of the cross work and resurrection of Jesus. That's where the grace comes from. And so in the 202 words, it repeats the phrase in him or in Christ six times. So the second to the praise of his glorious grace is all about thank you, Jesus, because it's all in you that we get all these spiritual blessings. And then at the very end, the final phrase of of the passage there is we are sealed in the Holy Spirit. 
And so, to the praise of his glory. It's Father, Son, Spirit. It's a Trinitarian gospel proclamation going on here in Ephesians 1. And let me just set it for you in in a bit of a contemporary context and why this matters. Uh, So what I'm going to do, we'll see if I can pull this off. Give me two minutes to take you through 2,000 years of church history. All right, so hold on to your seats. Here we go. Let's hop in a giant DeLorean together, our time machine. Let's get that flux capacitor fluxing. Let's go 88, and let's time warp together to the first century. All right, so here we are with the first century. We could see Jesus going toe-to-toe with the Pharisees over the question, are we saved by grace and grace alone, or is salvation some kind of handshake? And so picture this line. Above the line is the good news, the gospel, the reason King's Cross exists. Below the line is the bad news that you have to save yourself somehow. So the Pharisees are below that line, adding a mile-long list of do's and don'ts to the gospel. Jesus is preaching above the line. That's time warp a decade or two in the first century. Paul comes around. And Paul is preaching the good news that you are saved by grace and grace alone, so God and God alone gets the glory. Below the line, you have a group known as the Judaizers. And the Judaizers are saying, no, 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 salvation is Jesus plus dietary restrictions. Salvation is Jesus plus getting circumcised. Salvation is Jesus plus something. And Paul comes out guns blazing and says, that's not good news. The minute you add a plus sign to the gospel and the complete work of Jesus, the good news has just turned into bad news, right? And so you got Paul above the line. Let's time warp uh, to the fourth and into the fifth century. There's this British monk named Pelagius. And Pelagius is walking around saying, you know, I think we have this power of free will inside of us to, to be good people. If God commands it, we have to have the ability to do it. So Basically, salvation turns out to be a handshake. And the Pope at the time is a guy named Zosimus. And Zosimus hears Pelagius' idea that you can meet God halfway and says, yeah, that sounds good, Pelagius. Until God raises up an African bishop by the name of Augustine. Augustine comes around and says, if you meet God halfway and it's on you and your free will to leap to God so he can catch you midair, that's bad news. Because Augustine knew himself. He knew himself by modern standards he would be what we would consider a sex addict. He talks about this in the first autobiography ever written, Confessions. He talks about his sex addiction. And he was addicted to fame and status and and everybody loving him and, and thinking he was the best and to all these chemical rushes. And he realizes he couldn't fix himself. He couldn't change his own heart. He came to realize that he was saved not 99% one, but 100% by the grace of God. So he writes a letter to the Pope, to Zosimus, and says, we have to get back to the gospel. And the Pope pulls together three church councils, and in all three, they say Pelagianism is bad news. It's a false gospel. And so now you have above the line, preaching the gospel, the Roman Catholic Church in the fourth and fifth centuries. Now fast forward, let's hop back in our DeLorean, and let's time warp to the 16th century, what we're celebrating on Reformation Sunday. That same Roman Catholic Church had slid below the line and is now teaching that you can jump your way to God by purchasing these letters of indulgence, these little scraps of paper that were your passports through the pearly gates. 
And if you gaze on enough holy relics, if you look at you know, the skull of St. Peter, if you look at the leg bone of St. John, if you look at this wood shard from the cross of Jesus, if you do all of these acts, and if you pray enough Hail Marys and spend enough hours in the confessional booth, then you can please God and you can merit your salvation. And so God raises up this German monk who... It has a, there's no other way to say it. He just had a tortured, tortured soul. Why? Because he was living his life by the false gospel that if only I can do enough, then God will look at me and be impressed and want me on Team Jesus. And so history tells us that, that Martin Luther uh, would sleep without a blanket in the middle of the German winter in his cell there at the monastery on the brink of hy- hypothermia. Uh, in order to prove to God, see, is this enough? Look, I'm freezing on the cell floor. Is this enough to cancel out all my sin? And he would often beat his own back bloody as a way of saying, I'm sorry, is this good enough? Does this work off my own sin? And he would often spend, history tells us, on the average of six hours a day in the confessional booth. That's like almost a full-time job. Right it, To the point where his, his father confessor there at the monastery had to tell him, like, Luther, if you're going to be taking up six hours of my day, at least bring some interesting sins to confess. At least go out and do something interesting worth, worth hearing. And so he had this spiritual OCD, a spiritual obsessive-compulsive disorder of trying to get right with God. And he finally hits this point of despair where he says that, I no longer loved God. I hated him because he saw him just as the judge poised with a lightning bolt ready to zap him at his first moral blunder. And so here's Luther, tortured soul that he was. And he gets a job offer. The head of his monastery says, I want you to go teach theology. I want you to go to Wittenberg. I want you to become a theology professor. And this is the first time now Luther is reading the Bible for himself. He had been a monk for over 10 years. It's the first time he's actually reading the text of Scripture for himself. And as history tells it, uh, Luther is sitting on the commode, taking care of business, and he's preparing for a lecture on the book of Romans. And I know because my wife and I were in Wittenberg a few years ago, and they actually have the tower where the toilet was, uh, and it's all like cordoned off, and I got my wife to distract the security guard long enough to hop over and snap a selfie uh, where Luther had his, his tower experience. And he's reading along, and he, he comes across Paul's words to the Romans, chapter 1, where it says, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So the, the gospel, the good news is it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It's not uh, salvation is that 50-50, it's not salvation is you spend enough hours in the confessional booth. Salvation is not your power to, to brave the German winter without a blanket. Salvation is 100% the power of God. And upon reading those words, Luther said, this is a direct quote from him, he says, it was as if the doors of paradise opened before me and I entered therein. And that moment, that gospel realization for Luther was a game changer. It's what we're celebrating, this Protestant Reformation where the Catholic Church had drifted below the line, and so the Protestants come around protesting what? Protesting the bad news that you can save yourself. And so Luther starts his Protestant church above the line, a recovery of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, so God and God alone gets the glory. 
Now let's fast forward back to now. Let's hop in the DeLorean. Poof, here we are back in 2018. Mainline Protestants were surveyed by the Barner Research Group and asked a very simple question, which was, do you get to heaven by doing good things? Do you get to heaven by doing good things? 73% of mainline Protestants checked the yes box. That's how salvation works. You get to heaven by doing good things. Let that number like sink in for a second. That means roughly three out of four mainline Protestants have bought into the very false gospel that 500 years ago, Protestantism was originally protesting. In fact, uh, the Barter Research Group did a survey, uh, this was in the, the mid-90s, and they asked, quote, born-again Christians all around the country, uh, what's your favorite Bible verse? The number one answer, by a long shot, by, to the tune of 82%, God helps those who help themselves. Can anybody give me chapter and verse on that? First, not in the Babylonians 3.16, it's not there. And not only is it not there, it's the opposite. It's the antithesis of the driving biblical message that God helps those who are utterly broken beyond self-help. 82%. Uh, Jay Leno, back when he was hosting The Tonight Show, he did a sketch called Jaywalking, and he would go out on the street and just ask your average Joes and Janes questions. And one of his questions was, what's your favorite of the Ten Commandments? What's your favorite of the Ten Commandments? Could you name one? And if so, you know, what's your favorite? Take a wild guess what the number one answer was from The Tonight Show. God helps those who help themselves. It was America's favorite Ten Commandment. Right? And so the, the phrase is not only not in the Bible, like I said, it's the opposite of the driving biblical message. It's the opposite of the gospel. The phrase actually comes from an obscure political theorist, a guy named Algernon Sidney in 1698, wrote some political book, and that sentence was in there. Uh, ben Franklin picked it up later in his Poor Richard's Almanac in the, uh, or in the 1700s. Uh, you find that same idea taught in the Quran. Uh, you find the same idea taught in the Mormon literature. You find the same idea taught in Jehovah's Witness literature. You find the same basic idea in Scientology, in the New Age movement. Fill in the blank, and every religion on the face of the planet is going to be some version of God helps those who help themselves. What's utterly unique and true and beautiful about the gospel is that God helps helpless sinners like us. That's unique. You, you can think of it like this. Um, take a guess. In America, in 2018, what is our national average in terms of how many cereal options exist in your average American supermarket on the cereal aisle. How many different cereal options do you think are facing the typical American walking down that aisle? It's 215. Now, what does this have to do with the gospel? Well, if you walk down a supermarket cereal aisle and you see all, you're just bombarded with all these boxes, you might look at that and your head might start to spin and explode. Like, where do you even start to shop for cereal with that much overchoice going on, with that overabundance of options? Well, let me give you the secret of cereal shopping, which actually has everything to do with the gospel. If you take those 215 boxes and you flip them on their side and read the ingredients, what's actually inside the box, you will find 
that 215 options very quickly becomes about five options. There's really only about five ways to puff corn and infuse it with sugar. <laughs> and so if you look not at cereal boxes, but if you look at our, our pluralistic culture, with all kinds of different worldviews, all kinds of different religions, there's so many options for what's the meaning of life. How should you spend your 82.4 years on, on planet Earth? And it can be just as overwhelming. Vertigo can kick in when you start to see all these perspectives around us. You have Islam, and you don't just have Islam. You have Sunni and Shiite and Sufi Islam. And you don't just have Christianity. You have Catholics and Protestants and Eastern Orthodox. You don't just have Protestants. You have Baptists and Free Will Baptists and Southern Baptists and Northern Baptists and, and Scientology and New, and New Age and all these worldviews, atheism, secular humanism, Marxism, neo-Marxism. And in the culture where the whole world is at our fingertips, that can feel sort of overwhelming. And this is something that uh, the Canadian philosopher uh, Charles Taylor describes, his word for it is uh, fragilization, which is kind of a mouthful. But fragilization means that in the old days, you kind of had your community, and your community had its set answers to what life is about, and you weren't really bombarded with millions of other options for how to be human. And so what this does, living in what he calls the secular age, is it fragilizes all of our beliefs. Anything you believe, there's a sense of, well, there's a million other options out there. How can I really know at the end of the day that, that I've got this right? And I think the answer to that is to take all the worldview options, flip the boxes on their side, and read the ingredients. And when you will do that, you will find that 10 million options very quickly becomes two options. There's two worldviews and only two worldviews on planet Earth. There's the gospel and everything else. There's only one box on that shelf that if you read the ingredients, it has what we read in Ephesians 1 this morning, that it's by God's grace, so God and God alone gets the glory. Every other box on the shelf, whether it's Marxism, whether it's Mormonism, whether it's secular humanism, or any other ism you can think of, it's going to have the ingredient, you have to save yourself somehow either by doing more science, either by restructuring society to eliminate inequality. It's all going to be some version of we can save ourselves. And along comes this precious good news that Luther recovered 500 years ago that we need to re-recover in the 21st century. Uh, one of the first times Chris and I ever hung out I, we, I remember our conversation was about uh, re-reformation, the fact that we had a reformation 500 years ago, but you look at how the church has drifted below that line, just like the Catholic church did from the 4th to the 16th century, just like the Protestant church did from the 16th into the 21st century. God is raising up a new generation standing in Paul's shoes, standing in Augustine's shoes, standing in Luther's shoes, to say afresh in the 21st century the good news, the utterly unique good news that you're saved by grace and God's grace alone. And so that's my question is, where are the Luthers? Where are the Augustines? Where are the Pauls of the 21st century who are going to preach that gospel above the line? And my answer is, I pray I'm looking at them right now. <laughs> I pray that King's Cross becomes a, a place known for preaching an uncompromised, undiluted gospel, that it's grace and grace alone, so God and God alone gets the glory. So uh, let me sum it up in the words of the uh, great theologian Bono. 
I think Bono nails it on this. He says, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, that what you put out comes back to you. And yet along comes this idea called grace to upend all that. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. Amen? <laughs> Let's give it a little more enthusiastic amen. Have you done a lot of stupid stuff? Amen. Um, it sounded like some of you were amening that Bono's done a lot of stupid stuff, and you're probably right about that. Uh, I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins on the cross because I know who I am, and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. That's the good news. There's karma and grace. Those are the only two worldviews at the end of the day. There's save yourself, there's Jesus did the saving, the good news of Ephesians 1. And so let me, uh, let me get a little deeper, give me about five, ten minutes to unpack some more gospel truths so that you can walk out of here this week preaching the gospel to yourself. Because here's the thing, if you have a hard time actually sharing the good news with people, I'm going to make a guess, and, and it's, it's an educated guess. If you have a hard time sharing the good news with other people, I would venture to guess you aren't starting on the very closest mission field to you, the mission field of your own heart and your own mind. It's only if you are preaching the gospel to yourself so that you're enjoying God that you spontaneously begin to have gospel conversations with people. And so if we want to get to, well, why isn't the Great Commission being fulfilled more in our community, and we rewind it to the source, we got to get good at being gospel preachers to our own hearts. And this is something, you're, if you're anything like me, you drift below that line, just like the Catholic Church did, just like Protestants did over the last 500 years. You and I continually, like a force of gravity, get pulled back into this do-it-yourself kind of salvation. And so I want to give you some, some helpful ways to preach the gospel to yourself uh, this week. Because the truth is, everybody in the room, we're all evangelists for something. Think about it. You find this show on, on you know, Netflix, and you've got to tell people about it. You know, you've got to go watch Ozark, or you've got to go watch The Good Place. You find something, and if you enjoy it, you become an evangelist for it. You hear a new album that just dropped, and you've got to get other people turned on to it, because why? You're enjoying it yourself. We're all evangelists every day of our lives, turning people on to the things that turn us on. And so here's, I'm going to walk you through a couple ways to preach the gospel to yourself this week so that you're enjoying Jesus so much that you can't help be a Luther or Augustine in our generation. You can't help but tell more and more people the good news of grace. And so I want uh, to build for you briefly a little acrostic uh, with the word raps, W-R-A-P-S. Uh, and this is going to be uh, five ways to preach the gospel from Ephesians 1 uh, to yourself this week. Uh, w, you are wanted. And you see this, uh, if you look at the text with me in uh, verse 3 and 4 there, it says, uh, you know, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, uh, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and, I want to zero in on that word, blameless with you for, for 60 seconds blameless. In English, that's an easy word to just kind of gloss over and not really feel the full weight of the meaning here. But it's a Greek word, one of my favorite Greek words, amomos. 
Ah, momos. And so let's, let's hop back into our DeLorean and go back to the first century and, and see what this word would have meant to us back then. You see, in the first century in Ephesus and in a lot of cities in the Roman Empire, they had unwanted babies, and these unwanted babies were literally thrown on a human dump right outside the gates of the city. And so if you were walking into first century Ephesus, that's the first thing you would see is literally a human dump. And we have all kinds of history on this, that oftentimes uh, little girls were thrown away simply because they were girls. Uh, We have a letter uh, that archaeologists found that a husband sent his wife, he was out on a business trip, and he sent her a letter and said, hey, if your baby's born, if our baby's born before I get back, if it's a boy, keep it, if it's a girl, discard it. And so you had all these unwanted little precious image bearers of God there in the first century. And they were called the momos, which means blemished, means unwanted. And so a lot of those discarded image bearers of God would have been either eaten alive by wild animals, picked apart by birds, uh, they would die of hypothermia, or one of the most common fates is they'd be uh, picked up and forced into a life of slavery. And that was common in Ephesus, so that a lot of the very first people to ever read the the words that we read this morning would have been slaves who were unwanted by their earthly fathers. Their earthly fathers branded them momos, blemished, unwanted, unworthy of life. And so what does Paul do to a group that society and people's own fathers had branded them unwanted? He starts his letter to Ephesus saying, praise be to the God and Father. That's a weighted term for first century Ephesians. Father is, there's a whole lot of baggage wrapped up in that word. But what does Paul say? Your Father, your true capital F Father, not the deadbeat lowercase f dad who left you on the road like trash. Your true Father has renamed you Ah Momos, unblemished, wanted, cherished. And he goes on in the very next sentence, Paul says, and now you've been adopted as sons and daughters. Do you hear how that good news would have rang for a first century momos to hear that my capital F father created the universe, has renamed me from unwanted to wanted, from the blamed to blameless, from blemished to unblemished. And now I've been adopted, welcomed into the family of God. And in first century uh, law, if you were adopted, you could never, ever, ever be unadopted. Biological kids could be kicked to the curb at any time, and that was legal. You could send them to the human dump. But this good news of adoption is now I am irreversibly and unbreakably in a relationship with my capital F Father. So that's one way this week to preach the gospel to yourself. W, I am wanted. R, you are, this happens a few verses later, that through him we have received redemption in verse 7. We have redemption. So you're not only wanted, you are redeemed. And Paul is borrowing language here from the first century slave trade, which was a big thing. And the point here is that a slave can't liberate themselves, right? A slave is incapable of self-liberation. And so this is a second way that Paul is getting at what is the gospel that's to the praise of God's glory. It's that you who were in bondage, you who were shackled, you who could not set yourself free, through Jesus, those chains have been broken. You have been liberated through the cross work, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the second uh, good news to preach to yourself this week. Number one, you're wanted. Number two, uh, you're redeemed. Um, 
Number three is that you have uh, atonement. So it says in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You have atonement, which uh, means that we who were God's enemies have now been made God's friends thanks, thanks through the cross work of Jesus. And there's a lot of New Testament imagery that, that's packed into this, and I'll just give you one example here real quick. Um, in 1 John 2, it says that it's talking about atonement, and it says Jesus, who is the, the propitiation uh, for our sins, and it goes on to say, if, not, not if, but when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have an advocate with the Father. And I love, let me nerd out on the Greek with you for 30 seconds. It's this Greek word parakletos. So, so what does that prefix para mean? Para means beside. If I'm beside something, I'm para something. Kletos in Greek means your elbow. And so let me, I'm going to pick on Joe here for a second. Let's say Joe uh, commits a crime. He's super guilty. He deserves wrath. He deserves punishment. Justice is out to get Joe. If I am Joe's parakletos, I come beside him. I am now para Joe. And his elbow's right there. I take him by the elbow and I'm arguing on his behalf for his justification for his not guilty sentence. Jesus, in 1 John 2, is your parakletos. When you sin, he's the one who comes beside you at the elbow, and he pleads your not guilty sentence. He pleads my justification. He pleads your justification. And when he does that, he never loses a case because he's got a knock-down, drag-out argument, his own shed blood. Just let that sink in as you preach the gospel to yourself this week. I am atoned for, I have this advocate arguing my justification, arguing my not guilty sentence, and he cannot lose a case. Uh, P, so you are wanted, you are redeemed, you are atoned for, and P, you and I are privileged. You and I are privileged beyond belief. You see this uh, in in the opening lines again. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And I mentioned at the beginning, you see this six times in the 202 words where Paul says, in him, in Christ. And so what this means is because of your sin, you merit eternal punishment. You merit the just wrath of a holy, holy, holy God. When we often, as Christians, try to think about what is the gospel, to condense it in a sentence, a lot of us would say something like, well, Jesus died for your sins. And that's true so far as it goes. Praise God, that's true. But it's only a half-truth. Jesus didn't just die to take your sins and the wrath that you have incurred, that I have incurred. That's half of the good news. The other half is that His righteousness... His perfection, the eternal rewards that he merits by his perfect life, by the fact that he kept all 613 commands of the Old Testament without a single blunder, the fact that he loved the Father with his whole heart, mind, soul, strength, the eternal rewards that Christ merited become yours. You get treated for all eternity as if you had that 613 for 613 track record obeying a holy God. And so you are enormously privileged with all the privileges Christ earned on your behalf. And final letter in wraps here, uh, the S, is you're secure. You're secure. You see this at the very end of the 202-word sentence uh, where Paul is talking about uh, the Holy Spirit. 
and says, in him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You are secure. You are sealed by the Spirit, who is a guarantee. And the, the Greek word there is a word, erebon, which is a down payment, which in first century law and economics, if you put an erebon down, if you put a guarantee down, you have to contractually deliver on the full payment. And so you have been given the Holy Spirit as an erebon, as your down payment, that God can't do anything but deliver on the full scope of your eternal salvation, thanks to the Holy Spirit. And so there you have all of these blessings that we have in Christ. So I know Christmas isn't for another two months, but I want you to open what God wraps every day. I want you to, to see that, that gospel present is offered to you every day, to open it up. And it might take you 60 seconds, it might take you five minutes, but, but preach that gospel to yourself and say, God, thank you that through the cross work of Jesus, I am wanted. Thank you that I am redeemed. Thank you that I am atoned for. Thank you that I am privileged with all the privileges Christ earned on my behalf. Thank you that I'm secure. Come down, wake up every morning like you're coming down the stairs as a little kid with that present wrapped up there for you. Let me close with a, an illustration. Uh, my now 14-year-old, uh, when she was six, she really wanted uh, this Barbie bike. And it was like hot pink. It had the little frilly things that came off the handlebars, the tassels or whatever you call them. And she just wanted this, this hot pink Barbie bike more than anything. So Christmas Day rolls around, Christmas morning, and she comes charging down the stairs, and my wife and I got it for her. And it's got this big you know, pink bow on the seat. Now, she came down and read, she rode that bike all day long just in circles out front. It just made her Christmas. But let's... Use our imaginations for, for two minutes and step into a parallel universe. In this parallel universe, Gracie comes down the stairs. There's the Barbie bike. She takes a look at it and turns to me and says, Dad, can I please have a Barbie bike this Christmas? I say, yeah, you mean like the one right there, <laughs> the pink one with the big pink bow on it? She's like, yeah, that's great, Dad. Thank you. I appreciate that. But, but please, I'm begging you for a Barbie bike. I, I just want like a hot pink one with the little tassels off the handlebars. I'm like, you're literally describing the bike that's right there. I know, Dad, that's great. Thank you. But I'm begging you, I'll be such a good girl. I'll eat all my broccoli. I'll do all my, my chores. I'll do all my homework. But I'm begging you, Daddy, please, can I just have a bike? Now I'm lifting her up and I'm putting her on the seat. And she's still begging me. And now I'm pushing her down the driveway and she's hollering over her shoulder, Daddy, can I please, please have a bike? Why is that a silly scenario? Because she's asking over and over and begging and trying to earn something that's already been paid in full. It's paid for. It's yours. Enjoy it. Some of us fall into that same trap. Please, Jesus, can I, can I merit your love? I'll be a good boy. I'll be a good girl. I'll do all my spiritual chores. I'll, I'll do all my devotions. I'll get it all right. I'll, I'll go to church every Sunday. Please, can I, can I have salvation? Can I have your, your eternal affirmation? Can I have security? Can I have happiness and joy in the gospel? Please, 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 please. And, and here's Jesus saying, here's your father saying, it's yours. Paid in full by the blood of Jesus. 
Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.